You're listening to Builder Funnel Radio. This is the Building a Family Business Show with Wes and Brooks Powell. Let's dive in. The Powell family construction business has been around for over 110 years. Over that time, it's evolved and been through four generations of the Powell family. What started as a new construction business building spec homes in the Seattle area evolved to building communities, remodeling, building custom homes, and then getting involved with property management. Today, the business currently owns and operates two retirement and assisted living facilities, several apartment buildings, and does third-party property management in the Seattle area with about 750 total doors under management. Over the last several decades, Wes and Brooks have seen it all when it comes to business evolution, family dynamics in the construction industry. This is the show where I work to extract their knowledge and experiences to help you navigate family dynamics, among other things, in your construction business. Let's dive into the show. Hey guys, did you know that 72% of client unhappiness is directly attributed to a lack of communication during projects? The team over at BuildBook has solved that problem once and for all with a tool that keeps all the conversations and decisions between you, your team, and your clients in one place. Their simple, powerful app helps you create daily logs, schedule and manage your client tasks, keep track of selections, process change orders, and so much more. I met the BuildBook team in Vegas at IBS earlier this year where they were chosen as a finalist for the most innovative construction tool of 2020, which is saying a lot considering how many tools are actually out there. If you're looking to remove the stress from your projects, make your clients happier, and increase your profits, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software, plus 45% off the first year. There's absolutely no risk to try it, so go ahead and hit pause and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 to take advantage of the trial and score the 45% off. This deal isn't available anywhere else, so I recommend at least trying out the software. All right, let's dive into today's show. Hey guys, welcome back to Building a Family Business here on Builder Funnel Radio. I'm joined by Wes and Brooks. How's it going, guys? Good. Going great. Good. So uh, I guess it's kind of become tradition now. Uh, What are you guys reading, Brooks? What are you digging into? Well, I was uh, finishing up the Diary of Herman Group, which was that uh, book about the 83-year-old guy living in the nursing home. And uh, so wrap that up. Just a very fun, fun read. So and then I'm kind of uh, still now I'm actually starting Enlightenment, Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker myself. So I'm a couple hours into that. Yeah, you have many more hours to go. <laughs> yeah, I think I have 19 hours or something. It's a long book. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Sounds like a beast. Wes, what are you reading? Uh, let's see. So I just finished Unknown Valor by Martha McCallum. It talks about uh, the main part is about Iojima, the attack on Iojima. And she had her grandfather's nephew was killed on Iojima. So anyway, it's her going back to the family letters and recapping that really interesting book and just reminds you of, man, <laughs> the sacrifice that um, this country made during World War II is just incredible. You know, like 416,000 military members killed. So, and uh, so I just finished that up and then I'm reading Win Bigly by Scott Adams. I like Scott Adams. Um, it's fun to listen to. He's got a great podcast in the morning. 
coffee with Scott Adams. So anyway, fun. And then uh, just uh, downloaded three days at the brink. Um, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. And so it's about his meeting in Malta. Um, so anyway, I'll get started on that in the next couple of days. So that's why I got going. Nice. Yeah, good good variety. Yeah, yeah. I just finished up uh, Win Bigly by Scott Adams, but he has a couple other good ones. I'm partway through Loser Think. Yeah. And then uh, his, I don't know if it was his first one, but it was the first one I read several years ago, um, How to Fail at Everything but still win big. And I like that one. That one's all about this concept of just building these different skill sets and being, you know, pretty good or okay at, you know, three or four things. But if you can find a way to combine those skills, you can kind of become one of a kind and, and unique. And that was kind of his story. I think around the whole Delbert comic strip was, well, I know business and I'm not that great of a, you know, an artist and I'm a little bit funny and, you know, throw them all together and there you go. <laughs> so, uh, but today we're going to kind of continue last week's discussion because we were digging into real estate and we realized, gosh, this is just a, a huge topic. And so today kind of diving into the metrics and all the numbers, but I guess before we get too deep into the weeds with all the, the numbers and the metrics, you know, Brooks, if we're thinking about building a project or buying or rehabbing and renting, you know, what are maybe just some, some keys to look at? Well, I think the first thing you always look at, it goes back to um, location, location, location. You want to buy, buy product in the right location um, in the path of progress. If you're going to be, you know, if you're in, in a town that has transit, you want to be around transit because that will continue to to be important. Um, but if you know you're not in a town with transit, then be looking at um, just what are those neighborhoods that you perceive that are up and coming that have not been seen yet that are have potential for equity growth. And then you know again, look, always looking for the lowest priced product in the neighborhood. If you're looking for something that's already existing, I would not recommend the lowest price product if you're looking at raw land, because that could be the, you know, a, a hole in the ground or some other problem. But <laughs> I, I don't know, Wes, what do you think? Yeah, I, well, I definitely agree with your last comment there. Yeah. Uh, there's usually a reason that dirt is uh, inexpensive and is still there uh, lots of times. So uh, I definitely uh, agree with Brooks around the regentrification, you know, looking for those neighborhoods that are up and coming and looking where you can see other money starting to pour into those neighborhoods and bring them back up. So then there's some great upside opportunity there for maybe outsized appreciation in those properties. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely would agree with what Brooke said I've, on those two points. How do you find Man, just, those up and coming spots? Yeah. Go ahead, Brooks. Well, I was going to say, just jump in. That's, that's exactly what I was going to say is that, you know, if you're, you know, always be reading your local newspaper, you know, or, or reading your local newspaper, however you get your information about your markets and try to be uh, talking to real estate agents or business people and try to follow the money. There's going to be usually bigger companies that are going to be making plays and you can kind of ride along with them. So if you hear about you know, out of town developer comes in and it's going to do a 300 unit apartment building. It's like, well, you know, maybe I'll just go down the street and I'll pick up a couple, 
rental houses or something. And so you can just uh, ride along on other people's investments or the city's got a big 10 year plan. They're going to build a uh, conference convention center somewhere. You think, Oh, okay, well I can get 10 blocks away from that and get something, you know, get a fourplex or something like that. So that's, it's just kind of playing heads up all on, I think on you, what's going on in your neighborhood. Oh, sorry to interrupt, Brooks. I wasn't uh, trying to catch you off. But I guess also just looking at the fundamentals of what people need to live. So Brooks mentioned transit, you know, being close to transit, transportation, but could also be being close to shopping and being close to all those things that people need to live easily and see if those things, you know, are those things coming into the area? Are they leaving the area? Have they been fairly stable in the area? And, um, and of course, schools. I think schools are critical, too, if you're looking at residential sorts of investments. Um, you always got to be looking at your school systems. Yeah, those are, those are good tips. I like the one just around, you know, following kind of the big guys or those, you know, five or 10-year plans, because those things aren't super hard to spot, right? You know, you can be just following the news and keeping up with what's going on in your town fairly loosely. And it seems like you would know about those things. Are there other steps that you can take that are a little more granular to kind of have your finger on the pulse of knowing maybe which neighborhoods are going to be popping up? Brooks, have you done anything or seen anything? Yeah. One one thing you can do is you can follow, especially now with uh, it's really easy to follow what's going on with your city council, with your local governments, um, and follow anything around rezoning, um, things that the city's doing as they're trying to spur development in their town. So they'll they'll rezone things. They'll do a master growth plan. Um, it's easy to get a, a meeting with your uh, local economic development officer at your city and sit down and talk to them about, hey, what are you what are you looking at for growth in your t- in our town? And they love to talk to you because their whole goal is to promote growth in the city. So they'll, they'll meet you for coffee or, or whatever. And they'll tell you, Hey, there's everything we're working on. And you can just go get right in that path of progress. Yeah. And you may depend on the size of town you're in too. If it's not too large, you can sometimes even just meet with a city planner, um, kind of see what's going on, start to develop those types of relationships. And then I think also your realtor network, you know, so always develop your realtor network and make sure you're taking them out to coffee as well. And, because they're always looking for opportunities um, as well. So you can kind of coattail off of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice. And so as you're thinking about either building a project or you're going to buy and rehab, what are some red flags that maybe, you know, eh, I should just bow out of this or this is looking a little fishy. Brooks, what are some things that, that people should be thinking about? Well, and they, we always do an inspection, whether that's going to be if you're buying a single family house, um, you know, we always get an inspection done to make sure we know what all the problems are. Um, on land, we always do land feasibilities so you can do all your due diligence. And uh, gee, did this used to be it? We did one site that uh, turned out it was a gas station in the 1920s. Well, here it was oh, in the wow. 90s. No one even remembered that. But so we did a uh, a level one and oh yeah there's actually two fuel tanks here that are here so we passed on it someone ended up buying it 10 years later and they built a couple houses and they had to tear out these huge tanks and everything and so doing your due diligence if you're not willing to spend 
500 bucks to figure something out for a, a house or a couple grand on a commercial property. You're really not probably in the mindset to invest in and, and try to get something started because you got to spend a few bucks to, to make sure you don't lose thousands. Yeah. So the, the inspection, is there anything else when thinking about red flags, you know, either specific projects that you can think about in the past or anything that, yeah, we want to dodge. One, one thing that you can always do is, uh, is check crime reports, right? So check your, check with your police department, see what types of criminal activity are going on in the area. I mean, you know, sometimes a place can look great and then, but it's got fairly high crime level and that's probably a turnoff. Um, as Brooks was saying, you know, don't be afraid to walk away from something. There's always, we always, sometimes we fall in love with some piece of property and we just think this is going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread, but you always have to be willing to walk away. Even if it's, I think we talked about sunk costs the other day. And uh, even if you got two, three, four, five grand in something in feasibilities, feasibilities, yeah, just, Hey, it's a lot better than losing you know, 150 grand later. Um, so just walk away from it if it's not feeling right. I would suggest too that you come up with a feasibility checklist. You know, we mm -hmm. haven't talked much about checklists, um, but it's very it's relatively simple to come up with a very uh, easy checklist that you'd have whether you're acquiring single family houses for refurbishment or whether you're building you know, some kind of building and you're buying raw land. Um, we ended up by the end of our careers on that. We had probably a 10 page checklist and it was basically everything on that checklist was every mistake we'd ever made. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, there's a really good, we just always, a couple, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you like that idea, checklist too, go, go read the checklist manifesto, um, which really yep. explains to you how checklists make sure that we don't, create uh, huge problems for ourselves. You know, it doesn't matter what field you're in, whether it's in the medical profession or the building profession, checklists are, are great. So I'd check that out. Yeah. I feel like the, the checklist yeah. too, um, they help you remove the emotion from it because I think with real estate and projects, you can get really excited about things. And if you follow that checklist and it, you're, you're hitting a couple of things or they're telling you don't do it, that emotion is super powerful. It can still make you want to want to move forward. So I, I think that's a good suggestion. I mean, one of our, you know, one of our, uh, on the checklist was our pro forma. So we put our initial assumptions, why we were interested in it. And that was on the left-hand column and on the right-hand column was all the real numbers. And so all those numbers that flowed out of that uh, checklist flowed to that back page and you had, well, here are our original assumptions. Here are the, the final numbers. Here's the stuff we're guessing at because we just can't get a number. And is it worth it to do it or not? Does it have the return we're expecting? Does it have the, the cash flow we're expecting? And if it didn't meet those requirements that we had, those targets we had set, you know, we just would, we would not do it. And we probably, out of 10 deals we'd look at, we'd walk away from nine and you'd do one. Yeah, and that could be tough. Well, you just mentioned the the pro forma and the numbers. I guess let's dive into some more specifics. So let's start with returns. You know, as you're looking at a, a project, what sort of return should people be aiming for as they're, you know, going through their checklist and looking at a project and going, hey, is this worth 
the time, the investment, that sort of thing. Brooks, you have thoughts on this? Well, it's an interesting question because we have some projects where we didn't have to invest any cash. We just invested our time. So we always were like, well, let's, you know, what's our return on cash if we didn't put any cash into it? You know, so it's like, oh, well, the returns are great. But we did put our intellectual time and our physical time into it when we could have been working on something else. Um, so we used to always be trying to make a 30 to 35% return, you know, on a, on invested capital on our, once we built it and once it, you know, what did it start out? What was it worth when we started? What did it, what was it worth when we got done, you know, repurposing it or building it? And then after that, we looked at maybe for a five to 7% return once we got it stabilized and kept moving forward. Wes, I don't know. I mean, there's other ways to measure it besides just, you know, those two ways. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's lots of different ways to measure it. I think that is one of the biggest issues, you know, when you use leverage and you borrow money sometimes to do a project, you do have very little cash into it. But uh, one of the things we've used over the last 30, 40 years uh, is just internal rate of return, which is simply, well, I like internal rate of return. It's it's very simple calculation um, that you can do with a calculator that allows you to take project A, which has a series of cash flows. You know, you put X amount of money in and then you get cash out of it over time and you compare that to another series of negative and positive cash flows for another project and and see which one comes out uh, more advantageously. So I think like an example would be if you put $5,000 into two projects and the first one you get a thousand bucks a year back for you know 12 years and then the second project you don't get anything back for 16 years but then you get $45,000 back but you go well gosh, you know, I put $5,000 into each one of these, which one should I do? And internal rate of return allows you to just punch in those cash flows. And actually those both have a 16% return, right? So didn't help you answer the question for that particular one, but you know, <laughs> another, uh, but the interesting thing is in the first example, you know, you had $6,000 that you got back under 5,000 actual dollars, uh, but you got them back really soon, you know, right away. <clears throat> And in the yeah, second example, we got a whole bunch more dollars. Forty, you know, you got forty-five thousand dollars back, but you didn't get it for sixteen years. And that happens a lot in real estate. You know, Brooks was talking about that. You know, you put, you, you do a project, and all your value is in the appreciation of the project. You don't see any cash for a long, long time. And is that a better deal to do than a shorter-term project where you get less appreciation, but you get more cash sooner? So you got to figure out a way to compare those two things. So, you know, if you have Excel, just look for the formulas, internal rate of return. Just make a list of your ins and outs for cash and you'll compare the two. As you were going through that, it seems like a lot of it then just comes back to goals and timeline, maybe mm-hmm. because you're saying, hey, if if I can't wait 15 years to get this big, you know, lump sum and I'm looking for something on a shorter timeline, then maybe that's not just not going to fit your criteria. Or would you guys say, no, you kind of have to have a longer term time frame with this stuff. Well, I, I think with real estate, you know, we talked about that on another show, which is just, you know, if you don't, everything works great. If you have 30 years to have it work out, and I think that is kind of true with real estate versus maybe something else that you're investing in. Um, if you need that cash back out in a hurry, 
I really wouldn't be messing around with real estate. Brooks, what do you think? Yeah, no, I would. If, if you're, if, if you're in the point in your business where you need all your cash to operate, you know, get to the point where your business is operating, you've got your cash reserves, um, you have your six months of overhead or whatever you've decided uh, in the bank, and then start building up your cash you want to use for your investments into real estate, and then use that. Um, but, you know, don't get, if the business is up and running, you're like, hey, this is working great, I'm, I'm ready to buy buy something, but you really don't have the uh, foundation in place for the, the current business, which is really going to be the thing that pumps out the cash, you know, get that all set. That might take a couple of years, then build up your, your, uh, war chest for, you know, building your, doing your first real estate deal. And then you may decide, you may say, you know what, I want to get cash flow out of everything I do. And that's just the way I feel about it as a personal conviction. And so then everything you look at is it's going to have cash flow, you know, within 12 or 24 months. And you wouldn't even look at deals that you had to wait 15 years to get a return. So that's just, a, I think, a personal decision you might make as an investor. Yeah. And as you guys think about your kind of personal philosophies there or style, I was just thinking about that. You know, you mentioned you try to get a 30% return on the invested capital, but then you're looking for that cash flow as well over time. Do you guys look at those as one takes priority over the other or you're it's just a personal preference or it's even project dependent. I guess I'm, I'm curious how you, how you look at those two components. Gosh, I don't know how Brooks would look at it. I think the way I would look at it is that I would want to go into that project under the assumption that it's going to produce cash. So, you know, I'm going to put this money in, it's going to cash is going to start to flow back out. You know, that's kind of my best case pro forma or my, or, you know, maybe my middle case pro forma. And um, so I guess the caveat would be is that just know that if that doesn't happen, you could be in that project for a long time and it may take, and it'll work out, but you got to have that extra time. So just don't go into the project going, man, my whole, you know, my whole house is tumbling down here. If I don't get this cash flow, doesn't work out exactly the way I predicted. And so if that's the case, um, then that's the sort of thing where I say, well, maybe I should be looking for a different project or I need to build up more cash reserves or do something else. Um, Cause if you actually need that cash flow to come back out right on schedule, just the way you laid it out perfectly, you know, there's a good chance it won't, you know, it might be better, but most likely, yeah, maybe, maybe it won't. So that, that would be my only thought. Brooks, what, what are you thinking? Yeah, I was the thing. I the the way I always looked at it, and um, in that my philosophy changed over time. But my my initially it was, hey, if I can get something built, I'm not really worried about it. The cash flow, as long as it breaks even, it'll appreciate, and 20, 30 years down the road, I'll have the asset. It'll be paid for. You know, that probably was not the greatest idea. Uh, you know, during the Great Recession, when it's like, oh, I could use some cash flow, you know, but what <laughs> our philosophy was, we were relying on our our construction company to run and pay all the bills and, and generate the cash. And we didn't really worry about the real estate portfolio. Looking back, I, I would have flipped that a little bit more and said, okay, the, the business is operating, paying the bills, has its reserves in place, but the real estate portfolio has to have some kind of cash flow to be able to weather a storm. And we, we just ran it super thin in thinking that, okay, well, 
it'll all work out in 20, 30 years. And, um, but we were just running it too thin. And it wasn't that it was highly leveraged. It just didn't have great cash flow. And so probably starting all over again, I'd be like, okay, everything I do will have better cash flow. I'll just do a little bit less of it. And it'll, you probably sleep a lot better. That makes sense. Yeah, Wes, go ahead. You were going to say. Oh, something. I was just, uh, just, um, it just primed me to think about reserves and cash reserves and things like that for for those storms and you know what your metrics are around that. And Brooks, do you do you think in that particular case you would have? Um, do you think that you felt like you were under reserved at that time around those, or was it just a more that the particular properties weren't producing enough cash. Um, I was, I think we were over-reserved. Yeah. Over-reserved in the business operation, under-reserved in the real estate uh, operation. And so the cash flow, as the market started to come down and, and vacancy started to go up, cash flow started to diminish and then got to where it was actually a negative cash flow. Okay. And as you're, as you're scrambling to protect the assets, then, you know, the cash flow just continues to, you know, get worse. And so it's like in the current environment right now where uh, all the Airbnb owners are like, oh, I have no cash flow. You know, who would have thought of that situation yet? That's something that really happened. Yeah, that's a good point. And so it seems like, you know, that reserve component, is critical. You know, you said you're over-reserved somewhere, and so that allowed you to to work through that. But I guess if looking back on it or just looking at some of the current projects in the portfolio, you have different types of projects. You have single family or apartment buildings. Do you guys have metrics that you look at and maybe you can talk through a couple of examples of how you calculate what's a good reserve amount? Is there industry standard or is it all personal, you know, risk profiling? Like I'm super conservative, so I have this sort of you know, reserve number or how do you guys think about that within the business? I think the answer to that to all your questions would be yes, right? Yes. <laughs> all of those things apply. <laughs> Easy answer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I would you say expand that. On yes. Yeah. yeah, I'll expand on yes. Um, you know, you can you can never have enough cash. Uh, I think that's probably the and the older you get, the more cash you want to have on board at less risk. Um, and the more cash you have on board, the the better you sleep at night, and the and uh, you're better what to weather a storm. But to grow your portfolio, you have to take risk, and you have to run it on less cash. And that's just the way it is. Otherwise, you're just not going to grow. Um, so it's reconciling and balancing the two things. One is the want or desire for growth and then the want or desire for uh, peace of mind. And I mean, every home business owner has to balance those things. So, um, you know, in our apartment portfolios, we, we use a couple of metrics. One we use, we always have uh, three months of operating expenses in the bank and we save $3,000 a unit. Um, to have them for capital reserves. And so, you know, you add all that up, it's anywhere from, you know, eight to 36 months worth of operating reserves if you, you know, didn't take another dollar in. So that's pretty comfortable. So you're sleep, so but you can run a lot less. I mean, when you're trying to grow, you're kind of rolling the dice and uh, 
you can run on, you know, very little. Um, so I guess it's what's comfortable. I mean, I don't know, Wes, you know, beyond yes. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. It's you're looking at your risk profile. And when you're younger, you recognize, oh, I have more time to recover from things that don't work out quite as well. So you might be more willing to take on risk uh, earlier on in your real estate career. And then as you get older, you go, okay, now I want to become more conservative. I will build more cash. I want to have a longer runway if the market turns down. And so you start to, to adjust that. But I think that, that metric that Brooks just talked about, the three months worth of operating and three to $4,000 a unit just in, in capital expenditure reserves or just in general reserves uh, has worked out well for us. And we've actually tried to reserve more than that. I mean, we, we generally have quite a bit more than that on reserve in the different projects just because, and once again, it's peace of mind um, and don't really have to be concerned about it. Um, I think, you know, if you are, it also depends on your ownership groups too. So if you're the sole owner or you have the same owners across all the groups, then, uh, or all your projects, then you can kind of maybe do a, a global reserve, right? So across several different apartment buildings or something, and you can, you can kind of, I mean, you're not pooling them all together, but you're going, okay, well, I do, we, we own all this stuff together. So if we needed to, we could loan from one project to another if one project got into trouble. Um, but if you don't have that, if you've got different family members, say, participating in different projects, then it's not as easy to do that. And so each project has to stand on its own and have its own uh, own reserve, reserve pool. So that makes sense. If you've followed Builder Funnel for even a little bit, you know we're huge believers in the inbound marketing methodology. One of the most important phases is the client delight phase. By delighting customers, you turn them into promoters of your business and your brand. The only way to get people to go out of their way to sing your praises is to wow them throughout the process. This is something the guys over at BillBook are helping you do. Better communication leads to better outcomes. And that means communication at every level. Daily logs, client selections, punch lists, and change orders. Today, that communication gets super fragmented between email, text, and phone calls. And inevitably, things fall through the cracks. With BuildBook, everything funnels through one simple app, keeping everyone on the same page and your clients filled with delight. No more digging through texts or random emails looking for client approvals. Just one place to see everything going on with a project. And as a reminder, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software plus 45% off the first year. All right, let's get back to the show. I think that uh, that it's always best to look at each property on its own because mm -hmm. as I was just looking at some numbers here the other day, I mean, one project we have has got you know, one month of reserves and another one has 62 months of operating. You know, so it's like, <laughs> right. yeah. so that, that one project really needs some help and mm -hmm. it, you know, it's under reserved. And, and so we're, I think it's helpful to look at each project really closely and say, okay, what's wrong with this? What's not going right here? And right. I think it's, you know, you, you can look at the, like Wes said, you can look at the whole picture, you know, like, okay, in general, take a deep breath it's fine. But as you're trying to look at each project, I think it's being specific and looking, 
okay, maybe I have this rental house over here in this neighborhood and it just never does well, for goodness sakes, and we can't figure it out. Maybe you sell that one and buy something else. Um, and Or you just you accept that, well, it'll never do well and I'm just not going to worry about it. So I think it's important to look at each investment and see how well, is it meeting your standards and you know, is it something you keep or should you trade it, you know, uh, and do an exchange or something to get a, a better property and not just let it languish? Right. And I think um, asking yourself the question, why does this project always struggle? I mean, it could be a lot of different yeah. things. I mean, it could be, well, okay, I just can't seem the neighborhood's not good enough, so I have a lot of turn. You know, I get new renters in here frequently, so that drives up my cost of refurbing the unit every time someone moves out. Or uh, I'm taking too much money out of this project. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm taking all of the cash flow. And so every time, you know, I look at my reserves, I'm going, oh, my reserves are short. Uh, why is that? Well, you took too much. <laughs> you know, you're, yeah. you're, you're, not, you're not saving for a rainy day. Um, so you really have to ask yourself, why is this project in trouble? Is it a fundamental problem with the project or is it a project, uh, a problem with ownership? <laughs> yes, because sometimes the owners are the problem and it's not the, the project itself. Yeah, and, well, and I was just thinking, <laughs> Brooks is laughing. There must be a story there. <laughs> well, it's just I'm thinking about myself as an owner and a lot of times I'm the problem. So I just laugh. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about that concept because as you guys are describing this, you're going, okay, you got to build up reserves in terms of operating expenses. And then you have a CapEx budget where, you know, for the apartment buildings, I think you said it was three or four grand a unit. But then you're also looking at distributions or cash flow to the ownership group, whether that's one person or more than one. And that can either be used to reinvest, to grow, or just lifestyle or whatever, you know? And so I, I'm curious, do you, from the beginning, are you just saying, hey, it's producing X dollars of cash flow, so I'm dividing that and kind of trying to build these buckets? Do you prioritize any of those buckets? How do you guys generally operate that if you're kind of getting into a project and starting to build up the reserves and thinking about distributions, Wes? So I think, you know, in the past, we've had projects where, Oh, all the cash flow went out and other projects where none of the cash flow went out. And over the years, what we've really tried to come to is a, a good balance between recognizing, at least that for us, you know, we look at real estate as kind of a, it's a long-term play, right? We just, we would like it to be multi-generational in the sense that the work that we're doing, that our parents did, and that we're doing, you know, the next generation does that that will all build and help the next generation. So that means that for a lot of um, apartments and, and houses and things like that, they're gonna be around for a long time, which means that you do have to have this uh, specific plan in place to uh, reinvest in that property or it won't be there to uh, service the community as a great place to live and it won't be there to service you as, as an owner. So uh, we take a more, what we consider a more balanced approach. Nick, everyone's gonna be a little bit different. Like we take 60% of our cash flow um, and put that back into the property. So, um, and then other ones we do 40% back into the property. So, and 60% gets distributed out to ownership. 
And that's for a stable property. So that's for a property that already has its reserves in place, has its operating reserves, replacement reserves. Um, and once it's stable and you go, yep, is pretty much clicking along. Now I'm going to take and I'm going to give, uh, you know, 50 or 60% of that to the owners, you know, as a return on their investment. And then the other 40 or 50% is going to get plowed back into the property to redo the plumbing systems and redo the roof. And, you know, Brooks was talking about that survey up at the beginning at the top of the, the podcast. And um, so knowing what your capital expenditure budget is going to be for the next 20 years is a, is a good idea. Um, so you can make sure that money is on hand. And uh, Brooks always says, hey, we never want to put cash back into a project. And so maybe he can talk a little bit about that. Um, but that, that's also a key tenant for us. But the, and the reason we don't is when you have multiple owners, um, you have multiple capacities. So you may have somebody who very easily could write a $100,000 check and you have somebody who couldn't. So you try to balance the each property to you know what's the capacity so that if you if you're distributing out you know you don't have to actually ask ask people to contribute back so you you you're conservative in your distributions and so it's it's saving for a rainy day um and so if you have multiple owners that are all in agreement like you know hey let's distribute everything and if we have to write a check back we've all have capacity and are all willing to do that then you know you could go ahead and distribute everything but everyone knows Hey, if there's a problem, we all got to write checks and, you know, within 30 days. So it's a good discussion as if you have partners uh, having that discussion, Oh, how do you guys want to do it? Do we want to keep it here in the, in the building account or do you want to distribute it out and be ready to uh, write checks back? So our philosophy has always been, let's keep it in the building account, keep it in a CD, some kind of money market, making whatever the market's making and it's available uh, to be spent if it needs to be spent if we have an emergency. So that's just been our philosophy with multiple multiple ownerships. Um, but we have friends who have properties where they distribute everything and they just know, hey, there's a problem. You know, I'm the bank. I got to write a check back. So I, that's... I think it depends problem. on the sophistication of your owners. So if you have some owners, say you are, you know, you've got some family members that are, you know, maybe they bought a... a a rental unit with you, a, a single family house, or maybe a fourplex or something like that. And they, but this is kind of their big foray into to, to real estate. They're not, they may not understand that concept of, hey, when the roof fails, we're going to have to go ahead and go ahead and um, uh, put on that new roof. And so if there's no cash left in the, in the account, we're going to have to go ahead and write a check back. So once again, it depends on the sophistication of the ownership group and if they're all kind of equal in that sense of what are their reserves, are they all equally reserved personally, um, and do they have an equal understanding? Okay, so let's talk about where these properties should be going. You know, I've, I've heard from some people you need, you know, an LLC set up for X number of properties or I feel like some people have even said you need an LLC for every property, even if it's a single family. What should people be thinking about in terms of setting up business structures and protection when it comes to properties beyond, you know, whether it's one, two, or, you know, a hundred different units or properties going on? 
Well, we should probably defer to Brooks, the LLC master. <laughs> yeah, right. The man, the man with too many LLCs. But I would say if you're just starting out, the um, if you're doing under 10 single family houses, just own them personally, carry an umbrella uh, insurance policy. And uh, that makes financing really easy because then you can get uh, Freddie and Fannie loans. They're and so they're in the cost of money is really inexpensive. Once you're getting up to that point where you're getting beyond 10, you're going to be considered a professional investor. Then you're going to really need to go to a community bank and get your lending there um, and develop a relationship with a community lender who will understand what you're doing and say, gee, if you're buying single family houses, we'll make you one loan at a time. They portfolio those loans, keep them in their bank so they don't have to be sold. Um, so, then you'd go to an LLC at that point. So I think if you get beyond 10, go to an LLC. If you're going to buy a multiplex of some type, then I would just put it into an LLC because uh, you're going to end up getting some kind of commercial loan. Um, and that LLC, that limited liability corporation, will give you protection, um, you know, specific insurance. So if you have somebody hurt on the property, you know, they're not going to be able to come after your personal assets. So probably the break point is probably 10 units. Or if you're just going to buy a building, even if it's a duplex or fourplex, but you're going to do it with other other partners, then definitely an LLC would be the way to go. I don't know, Wes, what do you think? Yeah, no, I agree with that totally and definitely agree with the carrying um, carry a fair amount of insurance, especially, you know, when you're holding it all personally, make sure you have a really good umbrella. Makes sense. And so 10 kind of being the cap, but the caveat being if you're going to own it with other people, set up an LLC and do it that way. Definitely, because in the LLC agreement, um, and we have LLC agreements for every single property that we own, and the reason is it has buy-sell agreements in there. It has uh, who's the manager, how do you make decisions, how do you resolve disputes. And if you sit down, you know, it only has to be 10 or 15 pages long, but if you sit down and figure out all those issues with your partners ahead of time, okay, hey, how are we going to handle this when we don't agree and when you're all getting along? then it makes it a lot easier when if things start to go a little sideways, you're like, Hey, well, let's go to the agreement. What does the agreement say? Let's work it out through this. And you can kind of move quickly through. I mean, I guess it's like a prenup kind of, you know, yeah, know. Right, yeah. and I think figuring out your risk profiles, you know, in that same conversation, just That's really, right. kind Absolutely. Of and uh, you know, if you have one partner who's, you know, not who's pretty risk averse and, and you're not, and you're, then that can create a problem for you maybe, you know, five, six years down the road. Um, the only other thing too, I'd say on the LLCs is just what you would do anyway, but just make sure that you keep all your accounting separate, um, set up your own, you know, you get your own LLC checkbook, um, run a separate set of books or accounting for each one of those separate entities. So don't, don't commingle funds. Don't, you know, any of those types of things, separate, separate accounts. So, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense because then you can do what Brooks was talking about earlier where you can analyze each property to see if it's an underperformer or if it's if it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. We've talked a, a lot of numbers today. Do you guys have maybe an, an Excel sheet or two lying around that we could share with people listening if they want to try to work on you know, pro formas or figuring out some of these schedules for saving reserves and planning for expenses or that type of thing? We have a pretty good... Um 
Excel spreadsheet on reserves, um, on how to reserve, you know, what items are on it. So we can, we can, uh, attach that and just, we just use one for like a typical 10 unit or 20 unit that we have there. It's a good, you know, 20, 30 year look out. Um, pro formas are a little bit more, probably could do another, whole other session on, you know, building pro formas as far as, uh, you know, how do you build something, mm-hmm. um, as far as a development pro forma, um, and then there's always a the question of expense ratios, which I think comes up, which, you know, Wes, what, what's our range of expense ratios we use on our apartment buildings? Right. Well, I think it, de- it depends on the size of the building, of course, right? So, you know, a smaller building, you might have a higher expense ratio. Um, and expense ratio just simply means, right, you've got your revenue and your expenses are per- uh, a percentage of that. So that's the ratio. Um, so, you know, maybe 54 to 58% on a smaller smaller projects, you know, 10 units or under, um, maybe a little bit bigger. And, you know, we're not talking about hundreds and hundreds of units here. We're talking more like 30 or 40 or 50 units might be, you know, 45% uh, in that range for your expense ratio. Um, And so now remember that as you're looking at your expense ratio, that's your operating expense expenses as a percentage of your revenue. It really doesn't have anything to do with any leverage that you've, any borrowings that you've done for that building and um, your costs around that. So your interest expense, because that can vary widely depending on how much you borrow. So that's really not a good way to compare, you know, building to building in terms of your operational expenses. So never include your interest expense as part of your operational expenses or part of your expense ratio. And the other thing um, is um, depreciation. So uh, put your depreciation below that expense ratio as well. Um, but anyway, those are a couple of expense ratios. Brooks, would you agree with those? I would. You know, most of our buildings are older. And um, I would say if you're doing something new, I mean, I would still, if you're building a new building, I'd use 30%, 32% yeah, expense that's a good ratio point. because right. the building's brand new. And, it's building, and so when you're doing your first pro forma, you're trying to see, well, how much could I borrow? How much cash should I have to bring to the table? I'd be using 30, 32% expense ratio uh, to start. And um, the appraisal will kind of bear that out, but at least you have a better idea. You, you'd never get anything to pencil with a 50% expense ratio when you're building it. <laughs> you know? yeah, 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 that's a good point. But I think um, it's also important as you do collect up some properties and over time, and as those buildings do get older, to adjust your expense ratio and make sure that you are allowing for the fact that you know, you're going to be spending a lot more on these buildings to keep them in good shape and, you know, make them a good place to live. And so your maintenance costs are going to go up and that's just to be expected. You got to, you know, figure yeah. that into the equation. Yeah, that's and a good point. One of the examples, oh, go ahead, I was going to say, Spence, one of the examples is we have some buildings that were built in the 60s that have swimming pools. Well, you know, the build, you know, the swimming pool was great for 20 years and really didn't need a lot of maintenance. Uh, but now, you know, they have to be rebuilt. And and so that's how that pushes that expense ratio way up where it's like, oh, it used to be a few hundred bucks for, for filters and stuff. Well, now it's thousands and thousands of dollars to keep that pool open. And it's a great amenity, but it just costs more because it's 50 years old. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're a, especially if you're a new, new home builder last time, you know, and you've built, start to build some uh, units on the side and you're used to new, right? Everything's always new. And uh, so, hey, it's great. There's no expenses really because it's new. And uh, that, but (laughs) 
new is not forever, right? So you do have to adjust your mindset as you see your portfolio start to age a little bit. Yeah, it seems like that's where having that longer term vision and just building out that, you know, 10, 20, 30 year outlook and going, okay, I might be fine for the first five years, but then it's that ratio is going to start to increase as you hit some of those milestones of stuff starting to wear out and needing to save for it. So I think that's yeah, good, good lens to look through it. You know, where is this property in its, its own life cycle and then adjusting accordingly. Well, guys, we, we dove into a bunch of numbers and it sounds like there's maybe even more we could dive into with performance and other things. But uh, yeah, thanks again for diving in and uh, we'll see you guys next week. All right. Thanks, Spence. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Spencer. All right.